1: This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're going to be taking your calls during the hour concerning any type of health-related questions that you might have about yourself, or maybe it's one of your loved ones, new medications, new symptoms, maybe new some new diagnoses that you want to Ask some questions about and what to expect that you just didn't quite get all the answers. We would be glad to take those calls this morning. You can reach us by calling one mpb ring That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can always email us. You can send those via email to remedy at mpbonline.org. I do you want to remind people there are other ways that you can listen asynchronously? I love that term. To, uh, to Southern Remedy, if you missed a program, you can always go to our archives at um, mpbonline.org, search for Southern Remedy, and uh, check out our previous programs that have aired. And actually, there's a podcast, too, that you can subscribe to. Uh, if you'll search for Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio, you can find that and uh, uh, subscribe to uh, Southern Remedy. Um, do want to uh, have some kudos out there to people who are doing a lot to try to coordinate things. Um, it is not, I'm a big fan of, of giving, uh, appreciation during times that, that aren't necessarily something that says, Hey, this is the week you're supposed to do that. Uh, sort of like Valentine's day, but, um, uh, do want us to have a big appreciation to our nurses, uh, who are in the clinics and in the hospitals. Um, just an amazing job that nurses do day in and day out, uh, to educate patients, to, go above and beyond the call of duty when they're, um, you know, when they're, they're trying to contribute to patient care. And certainly I could, there was no way I could do my job without our nurses. So they're just incredible people, uh, and do a fantastic job. So if you have an opportunity to do that, maybe you're calling in about a prescription or something, but, uh, if you're talking to your nurses at your physician's office, uh, make sure that you, um, you give them the appreciation that they deserve. I had a lot of questions about blood pressure this week, just differences in how we treat it and what is needed. Uh, one of my patients uh, asked, you know, there's still a misconception sometimes if your blood pressure is controlled uh, to a goal blood pressure that's been determined by your physician or, uh, or nurse practitioner, um, you know, a lot of people would say, well, is there any way that I could come off the medication? And there may be some situations that you can do that, particularly if you're going to make some changes in things like what you're eating and exercise and activity, all those things sometimes can improve your blood pressure. But generally speaking, if you're on one, two, maybe even three medications for your blood pressure to control it to goal, you may not want to stop those because that's what's actually keeping it at that level. Another misconception is how you take blood pressure medication. Almost all the blood pressure medication that is prescribed uh, is uh, long-acting. Now, we certainly have some shorter-acting blood pressure medications, but usually these are reserved for use or should be reserved for use in uh, emergency or rapidly changing situations like hospital admissions for, uh, for control of blood pressure around surgeries uh, or other acute events that are going on or in the emergency room setting. And those are very useful because being short-acting, you can monitor that patient. Uh, for home blood pressure management, though, we don't typically recommend prescribing medications that are short-acting, number one, because it's so hard to take those over, over a day's period. I don't know how if you've uh, you know experienced this, but even taking something once a day for a lot of people, including myself, is very difficult to remember to do that. So if you're prescribing something two or even three times a day, it becomes even more difficult to stick to that regimen. The other thing is that it's much easier to control blood pressure by using longer-acting agents. So if you look at all of the new blood pressure medications in the last 30 years, they've really pushed to make them as long-acting as possible. So they hang around in your system sometimes for days after you take them. So my question from a uh, patient of mine was, You know, sometimes I take this medication and sometimes I don't. And my question back to them was, well, why do you do that? Why do you skip taking it every day? And they said, well, I just didn't think that I needed it. So even if your blood pressure is controlled, it's controlled because you're taking that medication the way it's designed to be taken, which is about at the same time every day. You don't have to be down to the minute or even the hour, but about the same time every day and consistently taking that. Um, it is also very difficult for your physician to, um, to determine if um, there is, um, if a medication is working if you're doing it sporadically like that. So just a couple of things to keep in mind uh, about blood pressure management. Same thing could be said though of any medication. The way it's prescribed by your physician, even if you're having side effects, it's very important to take it exactly like they said. If you're having problems, call their office see if they can change it, see if they can modify the dosing of it maybe, or change to something else. Um, but it really, it's, it's really important to take it exactly how it's prescribed. That goes for all kinds of medications, antibiotics, long-term uh, health issues, all of those things really, uh, all those medications are designed to be taken a certain way. When you deviate from that, you can have a lot of problems. This is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. The number to call is one eight seven seven MPB Ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Terry in Vicksburg. Good morning, Terry. What's your question this morning?
2: Yes, thank you, Dr. Jimmy. Enjoy your show. I'm thank a seventy three year old male, and I recently had blood work done last week, and received some information on my portal yesterday that I had too much iron in my blood. However, I had these tests done in December and everything was fine. What can cause too much iron in a person's blood?
1: Yeah, great question. So, you know, a lot of times it's just the opposite. So people will have lower levels of iron. That usually goes along with anemia. Iron is uh, something that's used by the body to uh, you know, the pre- predominant thing we think about is in red blood cells. It helps them to hold on to oxygen and transport that to all the cells in your body. Now, the way your body processes iron is it needs a steady supply of iron in the diet to, uh, to do that effectively. And then it also has a way to store iron in your bone marrow, which is the place in the, in the inside of, of bones. That, uh, that makes those red blood cells. So it can store it in there uh, in those tissues as well. But some people, they there's a problem with the way that they absorb or metabolize iron, and uh, there can be different things that can make that iron level high. One of them is you're just taking in too much iron. So you can have iron overload. If you're taking a lot of iron supplements, you may be taking a little bit more than you need. Uh, so if you're doing that, you can sort of cut back on it. Uh, there are other enzymes that are a little bit different that in some people uh, you can develop something called hemochromatosis, which means that you have iron overload. So your body is metabolizing and uh, it's, it's not processing iron appropriately so that you end up having more iron in your system. The, the negative effects of that, if the iron gets too high, it can start to affect different organs in your body so that they don't function. And these can be things like your heart, your liver, um, your uh, pancreas. Um, People who have hemochromatosis, uh, they tend to have a little bit uh, darker skin. So it's almost sort of a bronzish color to the skin because of iron that's laid down there. And uh, one of the ways that they treat this is basically phlebotomy. So they actually uh, bleed off blood to get rid of the extra iron. Um, and that's, you know, people tolerate that fairly well, and depending on what their iron levels are, they do that periodically to try to prevent some of the side effects of it. But Terry, the first thing I would do would be to talk to your physician about that. The other thing is the way we test for that is uh, a couple of different tests. So they may want to follow up if you just had an iron level that's high with some other test to look at some of the iron transport, um, um. Uh, enzymes and molecules and and proteins. And then also to uh, maybe check a couple of other things too, but they may just want to repeat that iron test. And if it's back in the normal range, it's probably not that big a deal, but that's sort of the, yeah, that, that would be, if you were my patient, that's what I would do. I would pray unless it was really, really high. I would probably just repeat that. And then um, if it's still high at that point, then I might get some other tests to try to confirm if you're having a problem uh, metabolizing that iron.
3: All
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Jimmy. You've been quite helpful.
1: I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions about any kind of health care issue that you might be having. Um, we've got lots of good time ahead of us to talk about this, and we want to go to our uh, next caller who is on the road. Wesley, thank you for calling this morning. What's your question this morning?
4: I was wondering how I could find out
2: uh,
4: what kind of advantageous foods I could eat to uh, control prediabetes or if uh, just
2: extra extra exercise would do it?
1: Yeah, great question. So if you are at risk to have diabetes, and there's a couple of different ways to know that, the best way to know that, there's a test that that your physician's office can do uh, called a, a hemoglobin A1C. And that's a three-month average of your blood sugar. And, you know, if that puts you sort of in that pre-diabetic range, then there are some things that you can do to help slow that process down so that you're not going to have diabetes. Or if you're in a family that everybody, you know, there's a lot of families because it sort of runs in families, a lot of things that uh, you can do to try to prevent that uh, from getting it. So you mentioned two different ways, and those are probably the best ways to try to adjust what you eat and the other is on exercise. So, uh, we are what we eat. So what the types of foods we eat and the amount of foods that we eat do play into the development of diabetes. So if you're eating a lot of high, uh, sugar, uh, particularly processed sugar foods, high fatty foods, then you, uh, are putting yourself at risk for, uh, diabetes. And you can change that to things like fruits and vegetables, uh, lower amounts of red meat. That's a very healthy diet, not just for the development of trying to prevent the development of diabetes, but also to try to decrease your risk for heart uh, conditions, for stroke, uh, for uh, heart failure. There's all kinds of good benefits, cancer um, prevention. Uh, so all those are very important, and it you know it, they've looked at different types of diets. I know a lot of people sort of stick to one or the other, and there's even you know if you do at say a um, key, ketogenic diet where there's a lot more fats and proteins than it is carbohydrates or low carb diet, really it comes down to trying to eat a little bit more healthy and that doesn't mean you can't eat your favorite food uh, you know if it's if it's in that category, but it means changing some things. So that being said, you know that's, that is important, but exercise is even more important. There was a study several years ago, actually more than a decade ago now, uh, on exercise and its effects of preventing diabetes. And they basically compared, they had a group that did moderate intensity exercise, and they compared them uh, to a group that took a diabetic medication to see which one was better in preventing diabetes. And actually exercise did better than uh, taking the medication. The medication was metformin. It's not that metformin is not effective. It's just that moderate to high intensity exercise was more effective. And based on this, the American uh, Diabetes Association has come out with some guidelines to help prevent diabetes and also to help with the treatment of it. And moderate exercise would look something like at least 30 minutes a day, um, up to an hour is even better of brisk walking or it's equivalent. So you, you know, the general, uh, thing that I tell patients is you want to be a little bit out of breath to where you can talk, but you can't sing. And to do that for up to an hour, most days of the week. So at least five days out of the week, it does help if you're doing a little bit of uh, of weight exercises with that. So that tends to help your muscles utilize the excess blood sugar that you have. But exercise is a very good uh, prevention technique to try to slow that process down. And even if you do have diabetes, you know, I would counsel all my patients with diabetes to do something similar to that. So Wesley, you can, you can go ahead and make some plans if you're not already to do those things I think those in conjunction together would at least decrease your risk of development of it. All right. The number to call if you have a question about anything is one eight seven seven, mpb ring That's one 877 Or you can send us an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. You know, we we're talking about medications at the top of the hour and We, uh, you know, I was just making a a point of taking medications like they're prescribed. A lot of people like to stockpile certain medications. Uh, Certainly if it's a, uh, you know, if it's an antibiotic, they would say, well, I'm feeling better. I don't have a fever or my child doesn't have a fever. Maybe I can just save that for another illness. Not really the best thing to do for that for a couple of reasons. Number one is just because your symptoms have started to go away, whether it's a fever or a cough or uh, any of those, you you really need to finish out that antibiotic course because the the infection may still be there in your body and you need to finish that out completely. The other reason is if you are trying to use that for when you get sick again, that's really sort of dangerous because even with different um, symptoms uh, or, or similar symptoms, you can have different illnesses that are causing those. And in particular, for viral infections, antibiotics don't really work for those. And you can develop antibiotic resistance uh, based on that. So you want to take all the medication that's been prescribed for you in the way that um, your doctor has put it out there. Um, We're going to go to Susan in South Haven. Good morning, Susan. Thank you for calling this morning.
0: Good morning. Uh, I have a question about blood oxygen levels. Uh, last year, I bought an oximeter uh, because it was supposed to be a better way to see if you ha- were developing COVID than temperature or other symptoms. What's happened is, as the weather's gotten hot and humid, uh, I wake up in the morning and I feel great. And then by afternoon, I'm, I'm having trouble standing up straight and I'm exhausted and I just fall asleep. So uh, out of curiosity, I checked my blood oxygen level when I woke up this morning and it was like 98 and my heart rate was about 60, but yesterday when I checked it, when when I woke up from one of my afternoon long naps, my blood oxygen level was was fluctuating between 92 and 94, and my heart rate was 70. Uh, Is there any way I can get my blood oxygen level up so that I I don't run out of steam in the afternoons when it's hot and humid? I'm much better in the wintertime.
1: Yeah, great question, Susan. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, these, these monitors. Hey, Susan, can you turn down your radio a little bit and just listen on the phone because we got a little bit of feedback there? Um,
0: My radio so, turned off.
1: Oh, okay. Okay, we got it. Sorry. Uh, so, um, so yeah, so there's a lot of – it's pretty easy to get an oxygen monitor. We call those O2 sat monitor, monitors or saturation. And they use a certain wavelength of light when you stick your finger in there to calculate – how much percent of oxygenation of your blood there is so that there are some limitations to those um you know we had my favorite is we had one of our patients that bought one and she said my oxygen saturation is 60 percent but they were talking in complete sentences and weren't short of breath well they were taking it through fingernail polish so it doesn't work that way so you have to have you know clear views all the way down even if you uh even if somebody tells you differently. But in your case, I would say this is normal from an o- oxygen standpoint. So our bodies only need about 90 to 92% of the blood saturation um, to, to adequately transport oxygen. And you know, even if you check the oxygen saturation of somebody who is a world-class runner and they're running a, a race or at the end of a marathon, you're not going to really find that the oxygen level decreases past that point. Now, of course, if you have other things going on like chronic lung disease or heart failure or pneumonia, uh, you mentioned COVID. One of the complications was, you know, it can, can be lung infection. All of those are reasons why your O2 uh, levels, uh, saturation levels can decrease. The, the variations that you described in both heart rate and in oxygen levels are normal throughout the day. Uh, we tend to have lower pulse rates first thing in the morning and they go up during the day. Uh, the best thing you can do and look, it is oppressive out there. I, I agree. And humidity doesn't really change the oxygen content in the, in the air that we breathe, uh, nor does heat appreciably. So that really doesn't affect that. What it does affect though, is how hard your body's having to work because of that excess heat. Um, so the best way is to condition yourself just like an athlete would to, uh, utilize the oxygen that's there. And the reason why your heart rate may be going up is because your body's having to work harder, not because it's getting less oxygen levels, but because downstream at the muscle layer, uh, uh, level that, that it's not, it's not conditioned enough to do that. Um, and if you think about it, this makes perfect sense. If you take a a high school person who's never uh, never run a race and they suddenly are training for a race in, on the track team, uh, the first time that they start to run, they're going to be a whole lot more shorter breath. They're going to breathe a lot faster. Their heart rate's going to be higher. As they train, they're really training their muscles how to utilize oxygen better and how to utilize energy better in different systems of management of that. And as they train, their heart rate's going to come down and also their respiratory rate's going to come down. But the O2 levels you mentioned are perfectly normal. Ninety two percent is in that normal range, even if it gets down to 90. Sometimes that's fine. But it's not really modulated from an oxygen standpoint by heat or humidity. But that does make your body work a lot harder during those times. Uh, from an exercise standpoint, you lose a lot more. You have to exert a whole lot more energy, uh, as you said, in the in the summertime than you do in the cooler months. So that's sort of a physiologic explanation for that. Um, O2 monitors, again, good things. You just have to know what they're useful for, what they're not useful for. So uh, I would actually, resting heart rate is a very good indicator of physical fitness, all things being controlled. So that's one of the things that athletes use sometimes to, uh, to see, you know, if they're getting enough sleep. If you don't do that, your heart rate's going to be a little bit higher, all kinds of different things that, that, uh, can make that go up or down. So that would be my, my advice to you that, uh, you know, just slowly, uh, making sure you're getting plenty of exercise, do try to do it when in the cooler times of the day, cause you can lose way too much fluids and you really can't keep up with that when the temp gets up above the nineties for very much, uh, above an hour.
0: Oh, okay, so that would stop the afternoon crashes?
1: Yeah, I I would say, you know, what that you need to, you know, slowly work up on what you can do. It doesn't have to be fancy. It could be something like walking. I would probably do it in the morning. It's probably going to give you more energy, not just in those morning times, but throughout the day.
0: Okay, thank you.
1: All right, thank you for calling. We're going to go to, I believe, Raul from Biloxi. Good morning, Raul.
4: Good morning, good morning. Um, I have a question is I'm kind of worried about, uh, I'm a diabetic type two, almost 10 years Uh
3: uh-huh.
4: and I have been taking a uh, hundred milligram twice a day and also 10 milligram glipizide twice a day. And, uh, my blood sugar is like a A1C 7.5, eight, sometime 8.5 something. And, um uh, Somebody telling me that that instead of metformin if i take in a insulin that may be more healthier and i don't know what is uh, best for me i'm 50 years old i don't want to take too many time for metformin or glipizide sometimes it stomach make upset too
3: yeah
1: yeah that's a great question you know for a diabetic for type 2 diabetes really at your age your goal should be a, a, uh, a hemoglobin A1C of less than seven uh, and even lower than that, you know, depending on how active you are and if you're not having any problems with lower blood sugars. The two medications that you mentioned, metformin and glipizide, are very good medications for type two diabetes. They've been around a long period of time. Metformin is usually the first one that we would put a patient on. It's an oral medication. You don't have to inject it. Uh, it works really well. Glipizide, works at the pancreas to, to make your body produce more insulin. It can be associated with lower blood sugars and some swings in blood sugars at times, particularly if you're not eating consistently. So at that A1C that you described, you know, you're know you not quite at your goal uh, and at those doses of those two medications, I really think that your, your physician needs to maybe, maybe think about a different uh, regimen now, it, you mentioned insulin, insulin is, is certainly uh, something that we would, uh, we would consider at this point. Uh, instead of substituting uh, it for metformin, though, we really don't treat somebody with glyphoside and insulin at the same time, so if you were substituting something, we would probably be stopping the glyphoside and starting insulin, and probably a long-acting insulin that you'd only have to take once a day. And then continuing that metformin. Metformin and insulin work very well together. Um, There are also a couple of newer medications. Go ahead.
4: So if I take the insulin, I'm going to stop the glipizide and still keep going to metformin?
1: Yeah, that would be, if I were treating you, that's what I would do. It's really not a good idea to combine the insulin and the glipizide together. But you can certainly have insulin and the metformin. Um, and there's a couple of other medications that are out there also. So some of the newer medications work a little bit differently. They tend to, you know, they would be uh, probably a substitute of that glipizide for one of those. So don't, don't think that insulin is the only thing that's out there that, in your case, that could treat that. There's a couple of other ones uh, that could be chosen, too. But generally speaking, at this point, you know, you sounds like you've reached about the maximum benefit from, from this combination, so either an insulin or something else in place of that glipizide would probably be the next thing to do.
4: Not the insulin, you know, an insulin that can uh, I can take maybe just once a day or? Uh, yeah, like a two yeah.
1: They, there's a longer-acting insulin that you only have to take once a day. Uh, and, again, you can take that with the, with a the metformin. There's not a contraindication for taking those together. In fact, they work very well together. Um, okay. And if, you know, some people take insulin twice a day, but they make some longer-acting ones where you only have to take it once a day.
4: you know the name? uh, I can can write it down, the name, the insulin, once a day.
1: Uh, So there's different types, and it really depends on your insurance and sort of what you can, you know, what you can afford uh, on the copay and that kind of thing. But I would talk to your physician about it because they're going to know better, you know, exactly in your case based on those other factors what would be the best one. But there's a lot of them out there.
4: Also, I have one more quick question, which is a re- recently, almost a month now, a month and a half. Sometimes I feel like my urine is kind of coming low, pressure is kind of low. What is the symptoms look like? I'm, my urine pressure is not too like used to be.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. The str- so it's not a stronger stream, is what you're saying?
4: Right, right, right. When so I do urinate, I wake up morning, urinate is not coming that used to be strong. Uh, force, yeah. but it's not that. It's kind of slowly.
1: Yeah, it could be a number of things. Uh, you know, as you get older, your prostate gets bigger in size, and sometimes that can be the the most common cause of the urine stream decreasing. But with an A1C is is in the the range that you're in, you have to keep in mind that you're losing a lot of water in your urine, and depending on when you're urinating throughout the rest of the day, you may be running a little bit dehydrated based on that. So. Getting better control of the diabetes may actually help some of those symptoms too. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy.
2: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
1: This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Got a lot of good calls this morning. We're going to keep them rolling with Sue from Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. What's your uh, question this morning?
0: Good morning. I hate to be redundant, but (laughs) I have a friend in Texas, and every time she calls, she talks about that gastric sleeve surgery, and you said you'd look it up. I I personally wouldn't have it done, but she keeps saying it's the quickest way to lose weight, and I just wondered, is is that still popular, or is that still being done a lot?
1: Yeah, I did look that up, and I checked with a couple of our surgeons, and I think it was just one technique or some of the products that had been recalled, but as far as I know and, and what they told me, they were still doing that, so... Again, one thing you could tell her is that they need to really. This needs to be in a in a program. Most of the reputable bariatric um, or or weight loss programs, they don't just jump to surgery. But there's a lot of things that they want to do. There's usually a psychological evaluation to make sure that they understand all the different things that are going to be involved with the surgery. There's intensive uh, uh, nutrition and exercise counseling beforehand. And most people are given about like a three- to six-month period before they actually do the surgery, and they encourage you to lose weight before the surgery. Uh, they found that if you do that, I know it sounds like counterintuitive, but if you do that, it actually helps you long-term make sure that you're going to you know, be successful afterwards. But, yeah, so I did look that up, and it looks like they're still doing doing those.
0: Well, thank you for the information. I appreciate that.
1: All right. You take care. Let's go to Edward from Behelia. Good morning, Edward.
0: Hey, doctor.
2: I talked to you before. Listen, I'm 76. So I'm on my 14th year. with My kidney transplant. My labs are perfect. Not good, okay. but perfect. I do take good care of myself. And now with the uh, the new variants, uh, the only person I've actually come close to is the plumbers at the VA to get my blood drawn every month. Otherwise, I've t- t- uh, since a year ago March. I've had total so, you know, social distancing and the uh, my daughter comes over, we sit in the backyard, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the clinic I go, I want to, I have the transplant in Alabama. I'm not going to say the hospital's name. Uh, they uh, stopped these telemedicine. They want me to drive over there and sit in that clinic room with all those people. Mississippi and Alabama have like 30% uh, uh, vaccinated. And you got these COVID zombies walking around. And I'm not going to do it. Uh, and the. Uh, uh, what I wanted to know is how would uh, how would I transfer uh, my uh, uh, records? So all I want from them is medicine. I don't, I don't want nothing else from them ever again. All I want right. is that I, I get it from the specialty pharmacy, and that's all I want from them. And how would I transfer it to Mississippi uh, providers, sure. uh, maybe at the hospital or where I could get my medicine.
1: Yeah, I think I, I think you could do that, and um, so there are a number of transplant nephrologists who are very familiar with the, the post-operative and ongoing care uh, of somebody like yourself. So I know here at, the, at, at UMMC, we have transplant nephrologists, and they're able to do that. Uh, their team is able to do that fairly well, and it would be less of a drive for you. Um, you know, or or they could do a lot of it through telemedicine and, and monitor levels. I know a lot of a lot of transplant clinics have sort of switched over to that and found it to be very useful. So the first thing I would do, uh, and I don't have the number up right in front of me, but I, I would, you know, usually these are these are regional um, um, medical centers. But I, I would uh, I would try to call the the main number at the University of Mississippi Medical Center here. Um, and, uh, just, uh, to see if you could, if you could talk to or schedule some, uh, you know, a, a conversation with a transplant nephrologist. The other thing would be able to call your doctors there in Alabama and to just discuss it with uh-huh. them and say, Hey, uh, and they, they weren't okay. able to do that or weren't willing to do that.
2: Well, I hadn't called. You know, I talked to them. I t- called over the last week, and, and they they called me up and said, "You need to make an appointment to come over here." I said, "I'm not coming over there with all these people, uh, and all this right. stuff." Uh, I said, "And uh, I so uh, ask them so, uh, well, about ask about well, alternatives." No. Yeah, I, I would they, ask they, them. I, I, told, no. I told the court, I told them to have the coordinator call me, and she hasn't called me in a week, so I'm getting nervous about this thing. I mean, yeah. uh, I've got prescriptions till next year, but uh, that's all I really. Ca- I'm mean, taking care of myself, and if I do need somebody, I'm sure I can find somebody here. So, uh, um, if I sent you an email, could you recommend somebody or uh, uh, give me, uh, you know, talk to one of your nephrologist buddies and have them give me a call or something?
1: Absolutely. You send it to remedy at online dot
2: org. That's remedy
1: at mpbonline.org.
2: mpbonline.org. Because I'm getting really, you know, I'm taking good care of myself, and and I've researched everything uh, to the T to to make sure I stay healthy. I mean, I can still crawl into the cars. I can do anything I want to do at my age because I'm just, you know, too damn stubborn to quit. But uh, I just don't like them. I just don't like them cutting off. You know, it's like they're giving you a choice: they either come over here, or uh, you know, and not have not getting a call back. Uh, I think was kind of rude. So uh, uh, I'm just trying to like research on my own. And you know, if you don't do, if you don't stick up for yourself, ain't nobody else gonna do it. If you know what I mean? Sure, sure.
1: Yeah, send me that email, and I'll try to plug in with some people that uh, that might be a little bit uh, easier for you to coordinate with. But, I, yeah, I think there's some other alternatives that you probably could explore.
2: Because, uh, you know, like at my age, uh, 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 Medicare uh, pays for the uh, cell and program, and I've got other insurance that takes, you know, I don't have to pay for any medicines at my age. So it doesn't right. make a difference right. who, who prescribes it. Uh, I'm still going to get the medicine. Uh, and uh, I'm just trying to think. Like I said, my prescriptions go to the end of the year now. But I just, you know, looking ahead, uh, I hate to have to have something happen to this kidney after almost 14 years. You know what I mean?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So send me that email and I'll get you that information. <laughs>
0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
1: This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. And we've got lots of good calls. Going to keep them going with Stan from Grenada. Good morning, Stan. Thanks for your call. Hey, good morning.
3: Can you hear me okay? We got you loud and clear. Awesome. Great. Thanks. Um, I am uh, 58 years old, uh, two-time heart attack survivor, one in 2008, one in 2014. Uh, I'm experiencing um, indentions in my lower leg from the elastic on my socks. Uh, No matter how tight the elastic is, usually we'll have some kind of indention. Uh, And also experiencing sometimes tingling in my fingertips, sometimes in my toes, uh, I know I've had a little, little bout with sciatica, uh, so wondering if it's that or, or anything dealing with the heart. And then um, uh, feeling like uh, maybe testosterone levels may be, be low. And then the last thing I'll ask you about is uh, what is your recommendations or suggestions from for uh, the COVID vaccination? Since I'm hearing um, that there, there have been some problems being experienced regarding the heart in some patients Uh receiving the vaccination sure and i'll listen for your answer thank you
1: good yeah so uh so in somebody who's already had some damage to their heart so you've had two heart attacks uh, you know the the way your heart pumps can be affected over time so, so a little bit of swelling or edema is what we call it in the in the lower extremities is common uh, I'm not sure if you had bypass surgery and they took a vein from those areas, but that can increase the edema too, but it may be a lots of other things. It can be increased weight gain. It can be certain medications, particularly blood pressure medications, sometimes can cause a little bit more swelling, but you probably need to get that checked out a little bit further to, uh, for them. If you haven't had an echo of your heart to look at the function of it, just to make sure that you don't have uh, heart failure. Uh, because if you do, it may, they may need to change a little bit of what your uh, medications are. So anybody that's had some heart damage and has a little bit of swelling, I have a pretty pretty low threshold of getting a, an echo to, to look at that on their heart. It's an easy test to get. As far as the tingling in the fingers and toes, a lot of different things can do that. Uh, it's probably not sciatica related if it's also in your fingers. There are certain vitamin deficiencies like B12 deficiency there's also some peripheral neuropathies that can develop uh, in, in different situations. If you have diabetes in some patients, that can also be a reason to get that, to have those. But it sounds like you need to address those with your physician a little bit. And again, particularly with the heart, I would want to make sure that your heart function is good. Um, and then the last thing about COVID vaccination, there's a small risk, particularly in younger people, of myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart um, that's been associated, that doesn't mean it's caused, but associated in a very low number of people who've had the vaccine. But they've looked at, it, at that in detail, and there's really much, much, much more risk of if you've got COVID to have problems with your heart, certainly more cases of myocarditis um, as a complication than if you get the vaccine. And particularly in your case with as many problems as you already have, I would go ahead and get the vaccine because it's going to protect you against some of those other side effects so um, or potential uh, negative effects with your heart. So that's that's my advice here, Stan. But uh, check that heart, those heart and swelling uh, of your uh, lower extremities out to make sure it's not a heart failure. Uh, let's go to one. Oh, go ahead. Oh, let's uh, we got to try to squeeze some people in here. Uh, let's go to Sharon from Holly Springs. Good morning, Sharon.
5: Good morning. Um, I'll make mine quick. About um, 66, about five years ago, um, one is due to family history of heart hypertension, and then the other is cholesterol, which I have no family history. They put me on lisinopril and a Um, I go back to my annual checkup in two weeks, but I've started as of the 1st of May. My husband and I together, we went on a diet eating clean, and I mean clean, Chicken and fish, I've had beef twice since May the 1st. So my hope is that, and I've lost 12 pounds. Now, my husband's lost 42, but that's a whole nother frustration. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, I'm wondering, is we're doing this, is it going to help me get off any of these medications, or am I just kind of stuck, especially with the family history of heart disease?
1: Yeah, Sharon, I think you got a good shot at it. Um, I would, now, you know, our genetics plays a huge part of of our risk. Uh, The best thing is when you go back, just say, hey, I've been doing all these things. Would you mind if I got off some of these medications or decreased the dose just to see? The torvastatin, which is a cholesterol medication, would be the one that you could easily stop for a certain length of time, probably a couple of months, continue to do those things that you've done or you may want to go ahead and call the doctor's office and see if they want you to go ahead and stop the cholesterol medication to see sort of what these changes have done on your overall risk. Um, That would be something that's easy to do. The blood pressure a little bit different, but you know, in certain situations you can actually decrease the dose or come off of it. um, You know, in that situation. And uh, just keep in mind, you'll have to come, Continue to do those things to to see the health benefits. Sure. Of it. But, yeah. sure.
2: Yeah, but yeah, yeah I think I you've mean, got a good
1: a good chance okay. even with those genetics.
5: Well, I think the atorvastatin was where the statin is the one that I'm kind of anxious to get off of. I understand family history, so there's not a lot I can do about that. And right, but okay, well, okay. Then I will call. Thank you. That's kind of where I was wondering how I should go about that. And I think I can call, and um, hopefully they'll at least notice I've lost 12 pounds.
1: <laughs> yeah, they should. They should do that. <laughs> yeah. All right, Sharon. Good, All right, thanks uh, good so luck much. Good luck to you on uh-huh. that. And, uh, hey, kudos for doing that, too. That takes a lot of work, and it uh, sounds like you've been pretty successful, you and your husband. All right, let's go to Emma in Ocean Springs. Good morning, Emma. We've got about two minutes.
5: Oh, well, howdy. How are you? Good. Um, I was wondering if there are, like, any actual benefits of taking cranberry supplements. Like, I take uh, a cranberry vitamin and then D-minos. I don't know if I'm saying that right. And I've been doing that for about a year. And I don't know. I can't tell any difference if I'm having more or less UTI problems. And uh, about a year or two ago, a male doctor told me very uh, condescendingly that cranberry has, like, no effect. And I know the Internet doesn't really ever tell you anything. So is there any benefit to taking those supplements?
1: Yeah, they've looked at cranberry juice in particular. I'm not as familiar with the other things that you mentioned, but cranberry juice, uh, if you drink it enough, it does sort of change the pH and some of the other things in your urine uh, that can decrease a little bit. Some studies have shown a benefit, others uh, haven't. Some of the bigger studies really haven't shown that. My viewpoint is if it's not causing any problems and you want to try it, go ahead because it's really, you know, cranberry juice is good for you and I would get the hundred percent. Certainly wouldn't get like concentrate or anything like that that has extra sugar in it, but uh I say it's worth a try. If you've tried it for a, a num you know a good while and you haven't noticed any difference, then it's probably not doing much in your particular case. Keep in mind too that sometimes you know, everybody's a little bit different, so even if you have good studies that show a positive effect, if it's not working for you, then I would sort of switch towards something else. Um, and but yeah, it's it's certainly worth a try. And there's a little bit of data to suggest that it does improve that. Um, again, I'm not I don't usually don't argue with patients on it just because the, the benefit you know could outweigh the risk of it. So that that'd be my um, my advice for you on that.